Welcome to the Don't Break a Leg podcast. I'm Danielle Parzanigan, a dancer and physical therapist specializing in the treatment of performing artists in Houston, Texas. And I'm Jake Manley, an athletic trainer and physical therapist at Pro PT in Winchester, Virginia. I lift weights, and the only time I dance is if I've had a couple beers at a wedding. Though we come from such different backgrounds, we're both incredibly passionate about the performing arts. We hope to educate you on a variety of topics about the health and wellness of performing artists to optimize your performance, longevity, and success. Welcome to the show. Before we get into it, I just want to give you a real quick word from our sponsors. Pro, the company that I work for, which is a pretty awesome company if I may say so myself, is now offering virtual health and wellness coaching to help facilitate you staying active and achieving your goals. You guys can speak one-on-one with me, a licensed physical therapist, athletic trainer, and strength coach, um, to discuss training, injury, rehab, and learn more about how you can stay accountable, take back control, and optimize your health and fitness, even during this, this weird time. Our approach is evidence-based, comprehensive, and focuses entirely. Hey guys, and welcome back to consultations the Don't well Break a Leg podcast. Are available. Today we're joined by a very special guest, Danelle Dixon, who is a graduate of the University of Delaware, has over 15 years of clinical, research, and administrative experience in physical therapy, specifically sport and orthopedic fields. She's worked in a variety of fields, hospital, outpatient, private practice, and started Performance Plus Physical Therapy in 2015 with the goal of providing a different rehabilitation experience for patients. Danelle has a manual osteopathic approach to patient treatments with an emphasis on biomechanical analysis, correction, and return to function. She also focuses on injury assessment and prevention for performing artists. She's been trained in manual-based courses, courses such as Institute of Physical Arts and St. Augustine, and received her board-certified orthopedic clinical specialist certification in 2012. Danielle has worked in educational development, serving as a mentor and clinical instructor to local physical therapy students, and performed research in the dance medicine field. She also presented research at local APTA and international IADAMS conferences on dancers, and has additionally published her research with the Journal of Dance Medicine and Science. At present, Danelle works with a variety of diagnoses, including common orthopedic and sports injuries, including post-operative conditions. She specializes in working with dancers and works with the local dance population in taking care of their injuries. Danelle, we are very pleased to have you on the show today. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Jake and Danielle. This is uh, this is awesome. I'm excited to be here. Danielle, can you speak maybe a little bit about your journey into the, the realm of physical therapy? Sure. Um, it's an interesting um, conversation. So I've been dancing since I was three years old. Um, if you do detect an accent, I'm originally from Trinidad and Tobago, so that comes up and I'm super excited. So that's where that's coming from. When I came up to the U.S. for college, um, I attended um, Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater for a scholarship um, for some internship um, or some intensive, I should say. And there was one. There was when I got one of my first serious injuries. I was dancing. Um, 12 hours a day, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. in all different classes, including advanced ballet and and Graham and African and doing, you know, contemporary work and, and modern work and pieces. And we were preparing for our um, end of the intensive um, performance and I got injured. And it was the craziest injury. I just got off the floor after rehearsal. I literally stood up and felt a pull in my groin muscle. By the time I got home about an hour and a half later, I couldn't stand straight. It was that bad. And my boyfriend at the time was like, you should put some ice in it. And I'm like, you're crazy. I'm not putting ice in my body. That's not happening. So I put heat on it because I knew nothing about my body at that time. And by the morning, I was in such immense pain, I couldn't dance. And it was just a moment of sheer panic of like, what am I going to do? It was an interesting summer. It was um, one of the first summers that I was away from home. Um, My grandmother had passed that summer at the beginning of the intensive, and I couldn't go home for the funeral. So I had this really crazy thought in my head of like, 
if I go through all of this for this summer, it has to be worth it. I have to dance. And I think that's something that every dancer can identify with. They're not going to put in all of this work to just have it come out for nothing. So with that thought in my mind, I found a physical therapist and she magically fixed me. And immediately I knew what I wanted to do. And that's how I got into the physical therapy world. So, and here I am. So you went to the University of Delaware? I went to the University of Delaware, yes. Now, did you uh, do anything specific to working with the performing arts as a student? I did. Um, so having that experience in, um, in New York City definitely um, pushed me to understand that I was going through physical therapy to work with dancers. That was always my intent when I got into the program. When I was at the program at University, University of Delaware, there wasn't a specific performing arts um, internship or affiliation that was set up. So I went to my advisors and I'm like, hey, I have a great idea. I know this doesn't exist. How about we create it? And what happened is that I created the internship that I eventually went on to do, which was um, a split clinical with um, Long Island University doing research with dancers and also working with the Alvin Ailey American um, Dance School. So seeing their students and also seeing the professional company. Um, so I, I know that they didn't have it and I'm like, I want to do this. How about we make this happen? So that's what I did. You have a lot of guts. <laughs> so coming out of PT school, did you then immediately jump back into the performing arts sphere? Um, ironically, no. So my journey to where I am today was pretty roundabout. When I got out of physical therapy school and I started working in downtown DC, I went into outpatient rehab orthopedics. Um, and in my mind, that was the closest that I can get to the dance world. Back then, there was not a lot of dance-specific related clinics that catered to dancers. Um, clinicians and, and clinics in general really saw dancers as something that was at the side and not as a viable population that would bring in consistent income because dancers, A, consistently don't get treated, B, don't have the money to do it, C, if they're injured, they actually either out and at that point in time, they're not coming to a hospital. That's just how dancers think. So I started at the hospital and hopped around um, over the period of maybe seven to eight years to different locations within that hospital system and then outside of the hospital system, going to different clinics. And you know, my, my search was really for where can I work with dancers? Who is going to value these these um this population as worthy enough to start a program for them that is not only financially viable from their standpoint, which is what most clinics care about, but also allows dancers to get the treatment that they needed. Um, and I don't think I ever quite found it. Um, it was it was something that was entertained for the most part. But from a financial standpoint, it was very difficult to maintain because, again, for those reasons I stated before, dancers typically don't have money. Um, specifically, if you're not pairing with a professional company that you have a signed contract with, um, freelance dancers that are on their own are not a consistent enough clientele to really support a clinic in that in that in that sense. Um, so when I did step out in 2015 and started my clinic. I wanted to make sure that I provided a place where dancers can come, even if they didn't quite have the money or um, create programs and outreach for them that they could have benefit, even if they didn't fit the criteria of being a viable financial option for clinics. So uh, with offering those different services, did you create like a tier-based system where you kind of price out services based on what they can afford? Or do you have like a scholarship program or anything like that? Um, absolutely. So the dancers that I treat in my clinic are not treated at full price. They do have a discount if they come in. Um, so that way they're able to access my um, my services a lot more. I do a lot of education within the, um, the DMV area. I'm in the DC area, guys, for those that are listening. Um, so I do serve Maryland and Virginia also, along with the DC um, population. Um, I do a lot of education in that area in the dance community. So I'll do workshops, I'll do in-services. Um, I do teaching also um, with um, the local universities of physical therapy schools. And that way I reach um, those guys um, in terms of working with um, University of Delaware and um, Howard University also. And then also I've been working on doing a lot of online programming for dancers that I cannot reach. Um, I've found in the past two years that I'm getting a lot more interest from 
people not only in my area, but also from my native country, Trinidad and Tobago, you know, I get messages and they're like, hey, can you help me with this? And I'm like, okay, I'm not in Trinidad right now, but I can help you online. So I've been creating some programs and um, some resources for them that they can access so that they, you know, if I can't physically touch you, there's other ways that I can help you. That's awesome. Well, I'm sure that's been especially helpful with these quarantine times where you can't touch anyone, right? Uh, oh, absolutely. So for guys that are listening, we're in the middle of Miss Coronavirus, which is very crazy for us all. So now is, you know, a great time um, to really kind of create all of these programs that I can reach all of these people. It's 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 been a little bit of a blessing and a curse and a double-edged sword, but I'm I'm happy for the time to really get to focus on serving a population that um it's near and dear to my heart and I'm, I'm very passionate about mm -hmm. now. So where specifically are you in are your clinics in DC or yeah, I'm downtown DC, right in the middle of it. Okay. <laughs> is, do you just have one location or do you have multiple in Maryland, Virginia as well? Uh, just one location. Um, uh, actually, when I started my clinic, I moved around from Maryland to DC and that was exhausting. Um, and I'm like, okay, I'm just gonna stick to one. So I let everyone come to me and um, I've actually in the past, I would say three years started using telehealth a little bit more mm -hmm. to reach people that I couldn't, that weren't able to come into the clinic or if traffic is bad, which is always bad in DC. Yep. Um, <laughs> if you're familiar with DC. I, I grew up in Alexandria, so. Oh, so you know, um, you, yeah. know. <laughs> you know. How that's why I live in Winchester. Yeah. You just go all the way out 66 so you hit 81 and that's where I'm at. Yeah. Yep, yep. You know, so people are like, oh, you have crazy hours. You start at seven and you finish at seven. I'm like, I do that to avoid the traffic. Like, that's what that's about, you know, because traffic right. is crazy. But um, I do use telehealth quite a bit to um, reach people who are not able to physically come into me. Um, so that allows me to be in a couple of different places in, versus just being my one location for those who physically can't come into the clinic. That's awesome. Yeah. Now, so you, you said you've been doing kind of like telehealth services for... Oh, a couple of years now. Mm -hmm. So did you even, when all this coronavirus stuff happened, did it even really affect your online programs at all? Uh, not really. Um, so it, it's an interesting thing. I think that the patients that have previously used telehealth with it has been successful and they've loved it. But coronavirus is a very different environment in terms of that. I mean, for most people, and I'm sure you can attest that it, it was just like, what's going on? There's a, pand a pandemic? Like, who would have thought that in this lifetime you're going to be going through a pandemic? Um, but what has interestingly happened is um, it's been a hard sell for patients in general, um, the, the, the major general population, because A, a lot of patients don't quite understand what physical therapists do. That's, that's our, our particular branding issue in general. But also B, um, Patients doubly did not understand what telehealth is. And as you guys know, as soon as the pandemic hit, you know, the physical therapy and the medical world were all in this crazy fight to try and figure out, um, are you going to cover telehealth services? Is it going to be covered by insurance, all that stuff? We were busy fighting with each other about, you know, yes, we should, we should have a seat at the table, that we didn't have much conversations with the public about, hey, this is an option that you can actually um, use, and this is what it is, this is how it works. You know, so you ask the average person what telehealth is, and they think it's a phone conversation. When it's, I mean, if you're doing, in my opinion, if you're doing telehealth well, is way more than that. You know, um, it, it really is a, a mode of delivery of, of, you know, medical services and rehab services. Are there things that we can't do because we can't touch you? Yes, but the goals are the same, the results are the same. And I, I, I think we need to do a lot more work in terms of making patients understand that. So from, from my standpoint, I think um, it's been a slow ramp up. Now that things are, things are settling down and people are not like, oh my God, what's going on? Do we need a mask? Do we need to go get toilet paper? You know, people are not thinking about that crazy stuff anymore. They're now like, oh yeah, my back still hurts. What am I gonna do about that? You know, so um, slowly coming around to that, you know, um, and, and I mean, in, in all things considered, we're still, it feels like 12 years, but we, we are still new to this in terms of the pandemic time. So we, we have some time to kind of get people on board to understand what we can offer and how we can help them. So now if we kind of like pivot here slightly and go back to the before times when you were in the clinic, um, are there any specific styles of dance that you treat more than others? 
Um, my focus um, is really ballet, classical ballet and modern. Um, and I see mostly pre-professional and professional dancers. Um, occasionally I'd see the younger dancers, um, ages eight, nine, that area. Um, but usually they're already on a pre-professional track. Um, they're, they're, not, they're, they're not making, they're about their business. <laughs> you know, right. they're, they're to get things done. Um, so that's mainly the, the population I see. Um, I don't quite see tap dancers. I see a sprinkling of African dancers here and there. Um, and I've been getting a very slow influx of um, Latin dancers. Um, but, my, but the bulk of the people that I see is classical ballet and modern. So we've spoken about ballet on here several times. Mm-hmm. Do you think we could kind of do a little bit of a deep dive into modern dance? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So for someone who's a little bit less educated in the dance world, like myself, what can you tell me about modern dance? What makes it what's what makes it stand out from other styles? So modern dance um, is very different to ballet um, visually and, and dance is a visual performing arts. One of the things that if you are not in the dance world, just as a lay person, the, visu- the visual effects that you're going to get from a modern dancer are very different from a ballet dancer. Ironically, the base technique has not changed. We still do tendus, we still do plies, we still do developes. The way that it's performed stylistically is very different. So with a ballet dancer, they will have a very held and poised posture. Ballet dancers really break that that line of the spine and line of the arms in terms of the performance of their work. They really break the line of the arabesques in terms of getting the legs up, the developing lines, those are really broken. Once you learn that base technique, it's repeated in different um, different ways and different musics and different um, compositions, but those lines don't change. In modern, there's way more variability. Okay, so you would, so for example, one, one very strong technique in modern dance, and modern is an umbrella term, just so you know. Um, these days, a lot of dancers call it contemporary work, but it's really, you know, there's not much differentiation between contemporary work and, and, and modern work. It's more of an extension and evolution of the art form as I see it. Um, there are different styles and techniques. There's Le Mans, there's Graham, there's Horton. The two that I'm most familiar with is Graham and Horton. So Graham um, is very much characterized by a lot of breaking of the lines. So if a ballet dancer stands up nice and tall, um, Graham uses a lot of what we call contraction. So a lot of curving, or um, contraction of the torso in that curved position. You'd see a lot of them working in that curved position. So they're very fluid in their movements. It's 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 not held and rigid as a ballet dancer where the arms move, but the entire body moves. And it's very controlled in that, in that rotational and contraction component. Horton is very different. And I, I say that with that tone because I'm not a Horton fan personally. Horton always destroyed me. <laughs> I'm a, I'm either. <laughs> so Horton is very different. Horton has very held straight lines, but they're also very angular. So think of a ballet dancer rotated 90 degrees. So instead of standing up straight, they are doing that nice arabesque line all the way to the side. The legs are turned out sometimes, the legs are turned in sometimes. There's variability in it. Um, it's one of those things that once you look for those specific patterns, you spot them right away. And most contemporary dance right now is actually a fusion and an acceleration of a lot of those techniques in terms of how fast they're being performed, um, how staccato they're being performed, um, and also just how fluid the movements are. They go in and out of Graham and Horton moves all the time. And I will say contemporary now as it has evolved has gotten into a lot more um, acrobatic work. Um, if you've been painted, if you know, look at TikTok, look at, you know, YouTube and these amazing dancers that do five pirouettes into a split, you know, that's way more of the entertainment side kind of filtering into the dance movement. I think that's a great description of the different types. I think it can be very confusing until you recognize those small patterns that come between the different styles. And I, mm-hmm. I also am with you that Horton was never great to my body. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about some of the injuries that come along with modern dance and how they might be different than other dance forms? Sure. Um, so with modern dance, ironically, when you look at the literature, there's not a lot of differentiation between um, their injury patterns, believe it or not. Um, the majority of them happen under the foot and ankle. Um, the next one up is usually the back. The next one usually up is a hip. 
Um, the numbers may change a little bit, but the incidence doesn't actually doesn't change. And the reason for that, I think, is if you take a little bit of a step back, again, as I said before, visually those two, those two branches of dance look very different, but the mechanics of how to do their movement are actually the same. So what I tell my dancers all the time, I'm like, ballet technique is is the vowels of ballet, A-E-I-O-U. You have to be able to do a tondo, you have to do a plie, you have to do a releve. You know, developes look the same regardless of the genre or, or, or the style that you're doing. Um, or a pirouette or a turn, you know, the mechanics of that looks the same. The way that you stylistically perform it may be different. And then when you get into modern and Horton and all of these other techniques, you're looking at the consonants of the alphabet. You know, so I always tell my dancers to be a really well-rounded dancer if you're really looking to be um, very versatile and be able to go into different um, directions in terms of companies. You know, can you go to, you know, um, complexions company? Can you go to a modern company in Europe? You know, having command of all of those styles is being able to have a great dance vocabulary. So ballet dancers usually stick in that because they don't have the technical stylistic training to transition to modern and vice versa. So I will always tell my dancers, get a good solid basic ballet background, get those things down, and then you can build on it. So to come back to your question, um, Danielle, um, for that reason, there's not a lot of difference in terms of the injury incidents, in terms of body part and where it happens. You may find that depending on the style, and that really is dependent on the choreographer. And um, again, that the modern and contemporary world is so wide. You know, there's so much that the things that people love about it is its variability. So one choreographer on the West Coast is going to be something completely stylistically different to someone on the East Coast. You will find that there are individual things that will pop up along that. So let's see, um, let's say Alvin Ailey's, um, um their work is way more Horton-based than it is Graham-based, right, in terms of the way that they do it. So they're going to get a lot more hip and back injuries because of the lines that they have to hold in those positions. All right, versus with a Martha Graham dance company where they're doing modern, they are probably going to get a little bit more knee stuff, you know, a little bit more ankle stuff. But again, the predominance of what you're going to get presented is really classified and concentrated at the foot and ankle, and then it goes up to the hip, and then it goes down to the knee. I hope that answered. That was a long-winded way of answering your question. No, that was great. Mm-hmm. I, that was great. And what do you think about dancers training in different styles? Do you think that that helps prevent injuries or do you think that's just greater load on them and therefore a greater injury? Or like if they're training between different modern styles or if they're doing ballet and modern and jazz, does that help them out in the long term to live healthier careers or is it the opposite? No, I, I think the variety is the spice of life when it comes to injury prevention and incidents. Um, the fact of the matter is, regardless of the genre that you look at, the majority, overwhelmingly, 80% of dance injuries are repetitive overuse injuries. That's a fact. Tap dancers get the same type of injuries over and over and over again because they're doing the same motions over and over again. Um, ballet dancers, similarly modern, African, you name it, they do the same motions over and over again, and that's why they get into their injury patterns. So breaking up that pattern and working those muscles and strengthening in different ways is always going to be a way to preserve the integrity of that muscle and to just bring longevity to your career. Um, I do think that it's still basically a struggle in the dance world because the dance world, and, and Danielle, you can attest to this, um, has been trained and their, their mode of training is frequency. Okay, if you want, if you want to get better, um, you do more of it. You know, and Jake, you can attest to this in terms of your background. There are more than one ways to get the optimal performance of a muscle. Frequency is just one one mode. So if you change in terms of the way that you work the muscle or the type of contraction that's done, or you actually load it up, God forbid, and that and ballet the conversation, you know, you actually put resistance and load on it, you know, then th- those are other ways that you can improve the performance of the muscle. But the dance world specifically defaults to frequency over time in terms of getting the results that they want. And the consequence of that is overuse injuries. So again, variety is a spice of life. You want a long dance career, get more stuff. You're also going to become a better dancer, you know, just like we read books and we listen to podcasts because we want a better understanding of topics and the English language and stuff like that. We encourage kids to read a lot of books 
to get a bigger vocabulary. The same thing with ballet. You you go into different styles, you get better command of different parts of your bodies in different ways. You can become a more expressive dancer. It's it's absolutely the same. It's interesting that you bring up the I guess the metaphor of reading more books, mm -hmm. because one of the terms that's been thrown around a lot more recently is called physical literacy. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about like, you know, children that specialize too early or, you know, in, if we apply to the dance population, someone that maybe only does ballet versus having these other stylistic departures to add more variability, mm -hmm. that that variability is just creating this physical literacy mm -hmm. so that you're not just getting stuck in a rut and kind of doing the same thing. Absolutely. I think I think it's absolutely important. I look back in my career as a dancer and I start I started off with classical ballet, as I said, at the age of three. And I started doing Graham when I was about 14 and I bloody hated it. Let me tell you, I was <laughs> like, what is this? Why do I have to do this? Because I was just so used to being held. I had I had finally mastered holding my position. And here was someone demanding that I break it and I use my body in a completely different way. It's equivalent for us of, of you know, having to suddenly learn Spanish. We're like, what? Like, how? Como? What? What are we saying? <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's, but again, once you've kind of broken and gotten your brain oriented to thinking a different way and expressing it a different way, you're going to start finding ways to use your body more efficiently. And, and that's the purpose of cross training and cross dancing and going through different genres. It's about efficiency. You know, and I tell my dancers this all the time, look at a little baby that's four years old doing a plie and then look at a professional dancer. That baby is using every single muscle to do that plie, the neck, the head, the fingers to do a plie. And you look at a professional dancer and it looks effortless. The difference is that they have figured out a mechanical pattern that is efficient and effective. They don't have to use every body, every muscle in the body. They're using exactly what is necessary to perform that function. So once you start getting that fluidity and that vocabulary, it allows you the ability to motor plan differently, to use the most effective and efficient way to get the best out of that movement. It frees you up from an autistic standpoint to now get into the expression and the things that why we call it a performing arts. Okay, so I think it's absolutely essential. Hmm. I like that term cross dancing. Yeah, I just made it up. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally, I'm, I'm just going to be 100% honest with you, Janelle. I'm totally going to steal that. Oh, take it. Take that. <laughs> just give me credit for it. <laughs> um, so to kind of like, I guess, go along with this idea of like cross-dancing, cross-training, what types of recommendations would you give people that you work with to, to I guess, like to do things that are not just dance? Um. This is also a hard sell specifically for the very heavy classical ballet dancers. And they don't quite see the benefits of it, ironically, until they get into the professional arena. Um, Cross-training, it's, it's, it's like my bread and butter that I talk about all day, every day. And it's actually one of the courses that I'm building right now for dancers online. Cross-training, cross-training, cross-training. It's going to allow you the break um that you need from the repetition over time to train your muscles efficiently and to become masters at the movement patterns that you're trying to work on it will only make your life easier um as i you know and as i mentioned before jake you can do a tondu eight eight reps one two three four five six seven eight you can do that eight reps um twice a day you know for seven days a week and just get to that level or you can do 16 reps with light resistance three times a week and get absolutely the same results am i right yeah yeah it's about training smarter i and i say it all the time the hard sell with it is that um dancers are usually pretty exhausted from the frequency over time that that their training demands along with kids today that have like an overwhelming amount of school i don't remember school being that crazy but i'm glad i'm not in it anymore um <laughs> so i can imagine that they're just like what i have to work more but it's really it's really taken a little bit of a diversion 
uh, from the path to put in the base work now so that they can move forward even faster. So I always encourage dancers that are listening out there, for those dancers that are listening, find a way to cross-train. There are many ways that you can do it. It can be anything from um, low resistance cardiovascular exercise that will really improve how much um, fatigue you're experiencing, which the research has shown over and over again. One of the fastest ways that dancers get injured is when they're fatigued. Um, so really improving your cardiovascular endurance um, to really optimizing that muscle function so that you're getting the most out of your technique. So the faster that you master your technique from a strength perspective, is the more time that you have to work on the, um, the lyrical and the artistic component of things. If you want to move faster, cross-train. It's as simple as that. Get the strength in that you need, get the endurance in that you need, train differently so that you can come back to that base technique and you can perform it at a much higher and more efficient level. What types of, of, of barriers do you see to uh, dancers cross-training? Um, they're tired. They don't want to do anything. <laughs> they don't want to do any more exercise. They're like, this is, mm -hmm. they see it just, just as more exercise and they don't want to do it. That's number one. Um, number two, a lot, a lot of dance teachers are really against it because again, they've been really brought up specifically. And I'm talking specifically about cl classical ballet. They've been brought up that the way that you get better is you train more, you know? So the idea of, Hey, how about you just do swimming? three times a week. It will increase your cardiovascular system like that. They're like, no, 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 you need to spend more time in class, you know? And until they actually see physical proof of that, they're like, oh, wow, how did you do that? You know, because they're, the way that they have learned how to train dancers is by doing more. Um, so there's a lot of resistance in feet, um, from, from dance teachers, ironically, to make sure that kids are not only just in class, but you know, are you getting something that you need elsewhere? Because that understanding of how cross training works in terms of improving the physiology, <clears throat> excuse me, and the performance of muscles is just not there. Um, and then in general, specifically when we're talking about pre-professional dancers, um, young kids that are still with their parents, it's just time and resources. You know, like most kids these days have exhaustive schedules. So to add one more thing in is really putting one more thing on a plate that they just cannot manage. Um, so I would say those are the those are the biggest um, the biggest drawbacks or the biggest um, deterrence to actually doing cross training. Do you see ways for like studios or companies to combat that to maybe integrate some of these things into class time or to have sessions throughout the week that maybe provide an, an opportunity for dancers to, to do some cross training? Absolutely. I think there are ways to do it. I, I think I think the better question is, do they see the value in it? You know, people don't put time and energy into things they don't see the value in. Um, I think professional companies are definitely on it, at least the ones that I've worked with. Um, they, they are realizing that, man, you know, it, it's, it's not enough to have amazing professional dancers and to throw them on tour and to have two PTs and two massage therapists on tour, it's not enough, they're missing something. you know. So I think they're slowly starting to come on board and like we have to train them differently to be able to withstand the demands of tours. you know. And in, in the big scheme of things, in terms of the athletic field, um, dancers um, today have crazy demands on their body, but it's not as extensive as let's say a Broadway dancer if you compare it with a ballet dancer because they're breaks and tours you know broadway dancers go 365 days a year 365 yes i have to think about that <laughs> uh, saturday guys it's saturday um and um but you know compared even to a football player or a baseball player the the, the requirements of the body is different but dancers i really do believe have a unique a unique struggle of understanding the value of cross-training, not only from the actual individual dancer, but from the company rehearsal directors, the choreographers, the teachers, because we don't see dancers as athletes. We don't, we don't talk about it. You'd say, well, you're an athlete, and they're like, I'm an art, you know, and, and they get very much into their feelings of like, no, I do this amazing, beautiful thing, yes, but the way that you do it is through your body. And in order for you to do that, you're doing athletic movements. That's a fact. 
And I, I can go on a whole other tangent about this. I'm very passionate about this. I won't, I won't dive down that rabbit hole. But again, until we understand, in my opinion, two things. We are athletes. We're performing artists. We're performing athletes. That's what I like to call it. Um, that's number one. We have to understand what athletes need in order to survive. That's when we're going to start valuing the concept of cross-training and how it fits and how it factors and how important it is in terms of our training regimen to get the results that we do and also to make sure that we're preventing injuries. Everything that you just said makes me so happy because you know so much. (laughs) (laughs) It's just amazing. And I am curious, one of the barriers to resistance training, specifically cross training with weights that we've seen in the ballet world is that they don't want to bulk up. You know, we could have conversations about that all day, but do you see that same fear of bulking or breaking the aesthetic lines in modern dancers like you see in ballet dancers? I'm just curious because from what I know about modern and jazz, it's a little bit less rigid in terms of body composition and compared to ballet. Yep. Um, Definitely a different world in terms of of the rigidity, but but the concepts, the aesthetic concepts, and thought processes of modern and jazz dancers are exactly the same, regardless of who's dancing. So the ballet world has done an amazing job of filtering down what is acceptable, of this is how you train. And exactly the same way that ballet dancers train is exactly the way that modern dancers train. They train by frequency. You, you, wanna, you wanna get that, that split jump? Come to class five days a week. Or you want to get a higher split jump, come to class twice a day, five days a week. That's that's how we've always trained. Um, it actually doesn't particularly change across genres. Um, I think African dance is the same. I think, you know, tap dancing is the same. The only group of dancers that I've seen consistently start embracing resistance or even weights are professional dancers. Because at that, at that point in your career, you have gone through everything. And you're like, oh, wow there's still more to do, what's next, right? And also at that level, to be honest, they have more exposure to professionals, they're more likely to be exposed to healthcare professionals, to strength and conditioning coaches, to um, personal trainers who will educate them and say, listen, you need some weight in your life. <laughs> you know, like it, it's, it's not gonna bulk you up. Guys, for, that, for dancers that are listening, weights will not make you bulky unless you train for them. Look at bodybuilders. They train for years to get that muscle mass. If you lift 10 pounds, you're not going to magically bulk up. You lift 10 pounds every day between your book bag and your purse. And, you know, like if you go to the grocery, that's 10 pounds. That's it. Okay? It, it's, it's nothing magical. I just, I just want to put that out there, guys. Really start paying attention to the, to the myths and the, and the things that you've heard all the time. And question, like, quite make, don't question your your rehearsal director and be rude, don't do that. But ask questions, ask educated questions. If I live 10 pounds for five minutes, will I magically get muscles on my ears? No, it's not gonna happen. It's never happened, okay? Like Costco workers do that all the time. They're not like bodybuilders, correct? You know, and that goes back to you know, what is the acceptable body pattern or body type in dance, you know, and we want to be super, super lean, you know, and super, super thin and have no muscle mass, but to be able to do all of these things, that there's a disconnect in terms of how those things perform. And the way and the way that we train and the things that we're being asked to do by choreographers, by um, in terms of performances now versus just 40 years ago is night and day. Mm-hmm. The lines that they're asking us to do, the legs, how athletic we're getting, how fast that we do a turn, how fast that we do a split. You're asking us to do more, and then you're not asking us to allow our body to adapt, to allow to get it. It, it doesn't work out. That's why dancers are getting injured. There's a mismatch there, and we have to acknowledge that. You can't ask us to do athletic stuff and then not be an athlete. It doesn't work. So... Again, I can go on and on about that. Oh, but preach! That was so good. <laughs> so let, let's kind of let's go down that rabbit hole a little bit. Let's talk about the whole okay. performing athlete thing. Mm-hmm. Why is it that the dance community, as you know, at large, doesn't want to embrace that identity of being an athlete? Um, I'm not. I'm not entirely sure. I can give you my thoughts on it. My thoughts on it is that 
um, we pride ourselves in our artistic um, expertise. We pride ourselves in producing works that are admired along the way. Dancers are known for having amazing bodies. You know what I mean? And but we we're prided um, mostly for for having athletic, you know, beautiful bodies that are not particularly seen as athletic. You know, so I think that there there has been this trend or this this habit of, you know, the, the illusion of the art that we produce, you know, like how match how light we do our sotes and our soda shaws and, you know, how easy we get our legs up to our ears. Our artistry allows it to make it look easy. What I think has infiltrated is that we have not been successful in conveying to our audience that this is work. You know, you don't magically do this overnight, you know, like anyone who's tried, you know, a Grand Batmar, you know what I'm talking about. It does not come, it's actual work to get your leg up there, to get the power, to get the force, to get the control, to bring it down and not injure yourself. And I think we've so long prided ourselves in being artists that we have really kind of pulled away from the idea of the actual work of acknowledging the work that it takes to get in there. And I mean, again, I can go down the rabbit hole of this, you know, it, it speaks to, you know, like who has authority um, figures and, and, and um, voices in dance, you know what I mean? Who's directing companies, who's directing rehearsals, who are the people that are actually performing the work? You know, like most dancers are female. Most dancers will not speak up if something is 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 hurting or aching. You know what I mean? So even though that we acknowledge that there's work to be done, it's shunned as to, to complain and say, well, you know, that's sort of shaw hurt. Can we do it a different way? That's not a thing that happens in the dance world. So you can go, you can look at it from so many different lens in terms of, you know, like how how is how is dance being consumed by the audience? What do we perceive as work? What do we value? That that um, from an audience perspective, that dancers can see and and say that okay, this was something that's worth being paid for. All the way to on the dancer side, in terms of like, who's who is who is the one in charge? Who's directing your care? Who's directing your career? Who's directing the things that you do? And you kind of get a mishmash of those, and you can go in so many different directions and peel apart why we don't want to claim the the, the athlete title because we're different, we're special, we're beautiful. But I think it's something that has come to bite us in the butt, to be honest, because I also believe very strongly from being in this field for over 15 years that the reason why we don't get the resources on the medical side is because we're not athletes, which is just this thing that we do. And for dancers that are listening, how many of you guys have heard, oh, you've gone to a doctor because, you know, your hip hurts when you do a soda shot. And it's like, well, it hurts when I do this. And the doctor says, well, we'll just don't do that. They don't they don't tell football um, players that, but they'll tell a dancer that because it's not valued as something as difficult or you're not valued as an athlete. Look at um, dance programs on, on at the college level. OK, dancers do not have access to what what the football players do. They're not they're usually not allowed to get into the gym. They're not allowed to get into the training room because it's for the athletes. Yeah, they are not athletes. So we spend so we we you know we, we may be a product of our own of our own um, arrogance so to speak. We've gotten so caught up in the concept that we are artists, we're not athletes. It's coming to bite us in the butt in terms of when we actually need those resources and that attention and 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 those things pushed to us because we deserve it too. We're not getting it because we've branded ourselves so well as artists and not athletes. Anyway. That's that's my rabbit hole. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And I think I, I agree with you that it's twofold. It's our view that we are artists and therefore the medical profession doesn't respect us as athletes, but then we want them to treat us as athletes and they're not doing so. Mm-hmm. And it's funny to me, some of the physical therapists that I've seen who don't have experience with dancers they'll be like, she has pain-free plantar flexion. She can go back to dance. Whereas that would be like saying a football player can run. Okay, he can go back. He's good. He doesn't need to do any cutting or sprinting or any other drills. But we're not going to look at how she does a soda shaw or a saute or any of those things in the clinic before we send her back, you know. Yeah, and it's, and it's important. And, and that's why I think the clinicians that are most successful with dancers 
if you don't understand your world, you don't get it. You know, like you, and, and it's, and it's not a, it, it, it's not in terms of a fault of the clinician. It's about being able to speak the language. If you don't understand that by the time I do my third sort of shot, I am dying, even though my, my training has, has taught me to make it look easy and you don't listen to what I say, you look at what I do, which is what a lot of clinicians are trained to do then you don't understand that by the time that I'm through my rehearsal and by the time that I'm on to my second show in my tour, I've torn my labrum and just like that, just like that, because you missed it, all of those signs. You know, it's really being able to tune in to that population and understand the culture and understand, you know, the things that they will endure just because, just like any other driven athletes. And I mean, out there, you guys that are listening, any athlete does the same damn thing. Every <laughs> single athlete does the same thing. Why would you not turn dancers at the same? It, it's 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 just crazy to me. So how so how do we combat that, right? Because I feel like most dancers they they could be in excruciating pain and they're always going to put on that like performance stoic like this is fine i'm good i can do it mm -hmm. how, how do we work through that as clinicians does it just come down to the relationship that we build and kind of building that rapport with someone i i do think i do think building a relationship dancers are not particularly trusting people you know if if, if if they don't think that they can trust you with that information um if they don't think that they can trust you to understand their pain they will not trust you they will not come to you that's a fact um, and I mean, I, I think that's really a generalized statement if you think about it to any any um, any patient population. You have to be able to communicate with them and you have to make them know that you understand and they're caring you're there for them and not for anyone else. Um, so I do think, um, Jake, it comes down to building that relationship. And I do think on on the outside of it, we need to be we need to be advocates for our dancers. We need to we need to make sure that they have a voice because a lot of times, dancers, specifically the younger ones that are now coming up, um, young young dancers, young females, they're going through body changes, they're going through puberty, and having to readjust to figure out how to recalibrate their bodies to do the same motions as they're growing the same with the boys. Um, they are less likely to go to oppose an adult, an adult teacher, or an adult choreographer, and say, hey, that thing that's, that that's, I've been doing for the past three weeks, I can't sleep because of the pain, you know, like they're less, they're less likely to do it because they want to succeed. They don't want to be shunned. They don't want to be left behind. So I think um, really spotlighting it like you guys are with this podcast. I've been doing the same and trying to get that conversation out there with my podcast. Um, it's important for us to talk a lot more about it and to make dancers feel comfortable with opening up about these things. Um, and also, I do think that we have to start on the outside as clinician, as clinicians, start really putting together clear pathways for dancers to get better. Right now, as it is, dancers, if you get injured, you're just like, well, all right, I guess you just got to sit out. That's it. This, this, it's either black or white. You're in or you're out. The show must go on. And dancers don't have enough resources to a understand things about their injuries how to work through it, and most importantly, what does going, getting from point A to point B while not getting put out of the dance or getting sidelined from a show or from a rehearsal, what does that look like? And it involves not just working with dancers, it, it involves working with all of the players, the educational aspect in terms of teachers, the rehearsal directors, it, it involves all of that. We need to create more pathways for dancers for, to get from uninjured to getting back into dance. As far as creating some of these pathways, is there anything that you do at a community level, like working with studios or educational programs to, to kind of help that? Absolutely. Um, as I said before, I do a lot of education of dancers and um, of dance teachers. I do in-services, I do workshops. Um, the more that they understand about their injuries and the more that they have clear tools on how to deal with them and what resources they have available, the more that individually in their different pockets, they can um, start working in their communities to create pathways for dancers. And it's, it's about having tools, guys. You know, if there are no tools, then there are no options. You provide them with the tools, then there are now pathways and there are now options. Um, also, uh, yeah. 
Sorry, I just lost my train of thought. I'm tired. <laughs> are, so are you noticing, like, since implementing some of those programs, are you noticing a change in culture or identity in your local dance community? Slowly. Very slowly. As, as you know, changing human behavior is very difficult. It takes time. Okay? Um, the fastest way that you will get it is attacking it from the top down and from the bottom up. Um I've been doing more of my work in terms of educating young dancers, and the young dance generation is very different to my generation and maybe yours. Um, they are way more informed. They are way more um, seeking and questioning, you know, how things are done and why things are done, which is awesome. But they also have the affliction of the lovely internet. You know, they have a lot more comparison than they have to do. You go on Instagram and you see people bending themselves in half and they're like, well, I'll never be like that. So they get, you know, I think they're, I think emotional and mental health for dancers is way more fragile now than it's ever been, although they have more information. So I think, um, I, I think it's going to be a process. You know, I think we'll see that change over time. I think, again, Justin, just in 15 years of practice, when when I started 15 years ago to now, the number of dance physical therapists working with this population has grown dramatically. When I started, it was just a handful of people. Now it's, it, um, you know, you go to APTA, um, CSM, and you're like, whoa, there's a whole hall of people. Oh, this is awesome, you know? So I think that the more people that are interested in, in this population, um, and the more research that is done, the more ways that we create tools and pathways for dancers to understand that we're here to help them is the more evolution it's going to take. But it's going to take some time. I'm interested to see what the next 15 years look like. It's going to be very different, and I'm excited about that. Yeah. I would like to take <laughs> a turn in a different direction just because I have a question about modern dancers specifically that's come up in the clinic a lot. And that is because modern dancers work in turned in positions and sometimes turned out positions when they're, when we're working with them in the clinic, should we be training them in parallel or in turned out positions? Cause I know many ballet dancers have an aversion towards working in parallel at all. So do you see that as something that could be different in modern dancers and should we be working them in both ways or just what are your thoughts on that? So yes, um, modern dancers do work in, in turned in parallel position and turned out positions. Um, I think I think it's dependent. I think you need to tailor your treatment towards the dancer that's in front of you. Um, figure out where their issue is, okay? Fix that impairment first, and then find out all of the things supporting that impairment that is gonna be able to bolster their technique. So for example, let me think, let me think, let me think. Let's say we have a dancer that has um, pain in a demi-plie in turned out position, but no pain in parallel, okay? But they are modern dancers, as you said. Um, you definitely want to train them to get back to be able to, be able to do a demi-plie in turned out position, which is where their impairment is. But you have to functionally train them to be able to withstand everything that they're going to encounter, which is both. So you may see that even if they're not pain-free in parallel, that they may not be as strong as they need to, or, or, or their, you know, their um, valgus and varus is not as great if they do a single leg demi-plie in parallel, and you can see that that knee is, you know, waving, what I call the princess wave at you. Then you know that you need to bolster that hip a little bit more and make sure that they are functional in both positions, because they're going to use both of those positions. Um, and just a little bit of a comment with that, Danielle, in terms of ballet dancers, yes, ballet dancers frequently do not want to train in parallel because they're like, well, I dance in turn now. This is where I live. But again, a lot of injuries that dancers in, um, encounter are overuse injuries. So if you're training in turn out all the time, you're now naturally creating a muscle imbalance where those muscles of the pelvis like to work here, but they don't like to work out in a stretched out position. Balance is key and diversity of training is key. So sometimes for my ballet dancers, I will ask them to work in turnout and they hate it because it's hard. And that's why, that's why they need both of those trainings. You know, because again, you bolster them in a different position, it only accentuates your ability to live in this position where they're functional. 
Variety is the spice of life. Yeah, it, it is. is. <laughs> it's funny. When I was only training in ballet before I went to college and did, you know, ballet modern and jazz, I would walk with my toes so externally rotated. Like, I couldn't help it. and Everyone made fun of me. And then when I started training in modern and jazz, my feet gradually just went back to normal. And it was such an interesting transition. And I think it speaks to working in different planes of motion and your hip muscles, right? Like the deep external rotators, not just being like stuck and clenched 24 mm-hmm. seven. Like I felt like they were. Um, yeah. And, and, and it's important. And I mean, once you start getting in deeper into some of the things that affect dancers, like one of the biggest things that hip problems are very prevalent in dancers in terms of injuries. Um, you start diving into that more, you start realizing there are things that can be affected in terms of activating the core, the pelvic floor, lord, that, and how much that influences a lot of hip injuries and lower back injuries. So working in one direction for the pelvis is never a particularly great idea, but that's what we do anyway. Our job is to allow them that freedom to do that functionally well, but to give them the variety and the strength to make sure that they're functional in other positions, which is normal for function. So. I just, I can't help thinking that, like, I feel like ballet just in general has just screwed the pooch over the past 400 years on creating a stylistic form that just does not recognize how the human body works at all. Uh, it, it depends on what, what, see, what part of a table you sit at. From one standpoint, it's like, you're not designed to do that. But then, I mean, let, let's compare that to sprinting. Are we designed to run however fast? Usain Bolt runs? Not really, but we do it anyway. Let's look at swimmers. Are we designed to, to swim that fast through water? No. The body, I think the body is an amazing tool, which is why, you know, I, I think dan- that the reason why dancers as athletes is so special is because we, we, we have the wow component, but we put the emotional touch on it that you don't quite get with a sprinter or with, with um, you get the admiration of the technique. Oh, he's a fast swimmer. Michael Phelps is a fast swimmer. Or Usain Bolt is a fast sprinter. With ballet, we're just like, wow. And it, it, it stirs up emotion and, and that's where the artistic side comes in. But the body is, is, is so mutable. It's so, uh, it's so able to change from, 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 how long, how short, how big, how wide, how thick you are, all of these ways in order to adapt to what you want it to do. Are there limits? Yeah, there are limits. But you know, the, the, the lovely thing about the human race is that we, you know, there's that lovely bell curve and there's always those guys at the end that hang out that makes us think it's impossible, but it's possible for them, you know? So I think at least my job as I see it as a physical therapist is to, encourage the healthy pushing of limits. You know, it's all about being healthy. We know anatomically what your body can do. And there's always, you know, one more count that we want to hold that that pirouette for, or one more count we want to hold that developer for. I want to make sure you can do it from a healthy perspective. And, and we can figure out the mechanics, you know, the mechanic stuff is, is um, debatable, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you heard that, but that was me just being speechless. <laughs> so, it's it's interesting stuff. It's really interesting stuff when you when you really start thinking about what the human body can do. Like really, like imagine a weightlifter could lift three hundred pounds. What? Yeah, Jade can lift so much weight. So yeah, also amazing. Good. Yeah. No, but, but it's awesome. Like that the body will change. The body changes the stresses over time. You ask it to do something and you train it and we'll do it. It's as simple as that. We just got to make sure you do it safely. You know? All right. Let's go rapid fire round. Sure. What are bad recommendations that you hear in your profession or area of expertise? I'll say this is a, is a direction. Turn out from your thighs. It's not quite a thing dancers. If, if you, if you study anatomy, the muscles that turn out come from your hips, not from your thighs. Um, and um, dancers, specifically teachers, have a very unique way of communicating with their students um, that um, is visual because we're visual people. So, you know, if you turn out adequately, you know, your thighs flatten out. So you think that you're turning out and you think it's originating from there, but then it leads to a lot of um, 
miscommunication and, and misconception that that's where your turnout comes from, which is anatomically incorrect. <laughs> so um, that's one. And uh, man, this is such a hard question. I hear a lot of crazy stuff, guys. I'm not going to tell you. Um, I, I would say specific to the dance school, since we're talking about dancers, the, the worst recommendation that I've ever heard, and I think it's very prevalent, is, um, you know, no pain, no gain. Like, like that is such a loaded statement for dancers, regardless of genre. Um, dancers learn that concept from a very young age. I've had eight-year-olds tell me, I know Susie's back was hurting her, but she didn't say anything. Like, we internalize that concept very early. And it's the concept for those guys who are not in the dance world that suck it up, basically. If you're in pain, suck it up. All pain is good pain. If you complain about it, then you're a bad dancer. You got to push through it. And if you complain about it, we're going to take you out. That's all we got, in or out. And uh, it's it's one of the things that I'm particularly passionate about because dancers historically do not know the concept or understand good pain versus bad pain. There's no understanding of that. And that's one of the reasons why dancers themselves cannot self-regulate when they are actually injured. It's, it's very problematic. Um, so it's a very bad consideration, um, I think, for dancers to understand that no pain, no gain. It, it's, it's such a bad message in the dance world, and I really hope that we can start undoing that by more education. What is an unusual habit or absurd thing that you love? Ooh, hoo, 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 hoo. Unusual habit, I love taking long showers, guys. I love taking long showers. And it seems like an absurd habit because it's clearly a waste of water. But um, research is actually, I, I, the reason why I like to take long showers is because all of my creative stuff happens in there. Like literally, it's crazy. I will get in the shower. Of course, I'm not really doing anything. I'm just kind of enjoying the water. And then my brain, for some reason, is just like, oh, I should do this. I should do that. I should do that. And I actually read a little bit about um, the fact that water produces theta waves in your brain. And that's one of your most creative um, waves that allows you to actually improve your creativity. So is it absurd that I'm wasting all that water? Yeah, but I love doing it. <laughs> it's something I enjoy doing. <laughs> so I, I actually, Danielle, we were talking about Zach and Steph earlier today. They have a whiteboard in their shower. Oh, so that if wow. they have a good idea, they can write it down. It's a thing, guys. I'm telling Interesting. you. And they do. Are we I've, talking like? Sorry, go ahead. They uh they make waterproof um shower whiteboards. Oh, I need that. I need that. So like, so what I do is I just write on my bathroom mirror. That's what I do. So once I get out, I just write on my mirror. There's there's so much there's so much stuff on. <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> you just have like a like an expo marker or something in your bathroom. Like, what do you use to write on your mirror? Oh, just like a regular, um, you know, the, the the little markers that you use on a whiteboard. You can just, you know, it's, it's a mirror surface, so you can easily clean it off. Nice. Yeah. So that's what I do. That's so interesting. I'm going to have to look that up because I'm telling you, like, like every everyone when I was in college, when I, you know, would take showers, I would get yelled at. When I was back home, I'm the last of six. You know, my siblings would be like, you're wasting all the hot water. You know, everyone's upset <laughs> with me. But it's, my brain is going in there. That's where I go to think, you know? So, it's interesting. All right, last one for you. Sure. Danielle's going to love this. What is your favorite food from Trinidad and Tobago? That's fair. That's impossible, guys. Oh, my God. So, here's the reason why it's impossible. Trinidad and Tobago has a composition of, that the population is a composite. It, there's so many different races, ethnic groups and races. There's Africans, there's Indians, as in from India, India. There's Chinese, there's Syrian, there's white. It's, it's a whole mix of everything in there. So we have foods from like all of these groups. I love curry. I cannot live without curry for that reason. Um, but I love everything else. It's so hard. I don't know. Um, geez. Okay. If I had to, if I had to pick one, I would say bus up shot. Bus up shot is a Indian dish. It's basically um, curried meat, so you can do curried meat or 
chicken or beef or whatever. And then there's other curry dishes. So you can have um, pumpkin, you can have bodhi, which is kind of like green beans. There's um, a mango chutney usually or any seasonal food that's a chutney. And then you have the paratha, which is called basab shot. It's like fried dough bread, but it's like broken up. So it looks like a shirt that's been shred, basab shot. Basab shirt, so basab shot. So I love that. And you eat it with your hands. It's it's the best. I swear, it's so good. It's so good. Now I'm hungry. <laughs> Is there a restaurant in the D.C. slash Northern Virginia slash Southern Maryland area where you can get that? Absolutely. Sunrise on Georgia Avenue. Um, Crown Bakery also on Georgia Avenue. They're one block away from each other. Um, there is Caribbean Palace, which is up the street from me in Tacoma Park. I'm not a fan of them, but you can get it there too. But my, my top two recommendations would be Sunrise and Crown Bakery, Georgia Avenue. Best, best food ever. Love it. Next time I'm in DC, I'm going to have to go check that out. Yeah. Message me and I'll I'll take you. It's it's, it's awesome. (laughs) All right, Danelle, we can't thank you enough for taking the time to be on our show. If anyone listening wants to get in contact with you, what is the best way that they can do that? Um, You can, um, I am most active on social media on Instagram. My Instagram handle is at the number three PTDC. So you can message me there. I love hanging out there. Um, I'm also on Facebook. My company's name is Performance Plus Physical Therapy. My name is D Mel on Facebook. Um, but you can also email me, info at 3ptdc.com. I'm happy to answer all of your questions. Uh, Danielle, how can people get in touch with you? My Instagram handle is Danielle Anise underscore DPT. So it looks like Danielle A Nice underscore DPT. She, she is a very nice PT. <laughs> awesome. So and then you guys can find me at TMD underscore the movement docs on Instagram. Thanks again for tuning in this week where we spoke with Danelle. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, complaints, or a topic you'd like us to discuss, shoot us an email at dbalpodcast at gmail.com. And as always, guys, remember, don't break a leg.